2: Jeff Bezos likes to say that at Amazon, it is always day one. His company may be about to turn 26, but he argues it should always be hustling like a young startup.
0: Day two is stasis followed by irrelevance, followed by excruciating, painful decline, followed by death.
2: The coronavirus pandemic has elevated Amazon into one of the world's most essential firms, as the ability to order almost anything online became a lifeline for hundreds of millions of people. But as day two dawns, can Amazon still deliver? You're listening to Money Talks from Economist Radio. I'm Tamsin Booth, The Economist's technology and business editor. In pulling forward the retail world's digital future, the pandemic has highlighted Amazon's strengths but also revealed some vulnerabilities.
3: At the end of the day, who could be against what Amazon is offering? You know, wide selection, decent prices and fast delivery. All those are great things, but there is a cost.
2: The company is finding that old tricks won't always work in new markets.
4: It can have warehouses, but it can't have inventory. You know, there's just impediment after impediment after impediment.
2: And it's facing young competitors with bold new visions for the future of e-commerce.
1: We're trying to democratize technology that's typically only reserved for very large enterprises, and we want to make that available to everyone.
2: The pandemic has precipitated a mind-boggling digital surge. As lockdowns forced closures of physical stores, many companies that had only dabbled in e-commerce had to focus all their efforts online. I've always looked for a tipping point for our online business. My name is Anne Cantrell, and I own Annie's Blue Ribbon General Store in Brooklyn, New York. We sell fun, um, fun and function. We closed on March 16th. Easter holiday was happening pretty close to, to that. I started to realize, as I heard from customers and friends, that it was hard to get Easter egg dyeing kit, for instance. Uh, if you tried to buy one on Amazon, they weren't gonna ship until after Easter. It's been a wild ride ever since. So I'm really hopeful that this is gonna be that tipping point. I mean, never in a million years would I have thought that our tap rooms would be forcefully shut down. Other businesses that had never even considered online retail an option were forced to reinvent themselves at top speed. My name is
0: Jessica Reeser. I am one of the co-founders and CEO of Burial Beer
2: Co., which is a brewery located in Asheville, North Carolina, where we now make 9,000 barrels of beer a year. Before the shutdown, Burial had a website. We were just selling merchandise, so t-shirts and glassware. We pivoted within a couple of days, listing our cans and bottles online to be shipped. We had to create an entire internal infrastructure for that, so that that was a little (laughs) nerve-wracking.
0: It really is quite a big change. I mean, most people think it's probably brought forward the shift to a more digital economy by maybe somewhere between three to five years
2: to get a sense of the scale of this pandemic-fueled digital transformation i talked to patrick fowles the economist's business affairs editor
0: in america for example e-commerce has roughly doubled as a share of total commercial activity over the course of this year but it's not just more people doing more of the same things because there's been a lot of creativity too And one example is the computer game Fortnite, which has, instead of hosting digital figures killing each other, had artists like Travis Scott perform concerts online. You've seen really old-fashioned brands like Heinz Ketchup go online for the first time. And then underneath all of that, there's this huge digital infrastructure of cloud computing and digital payments that has been used really more intensively than ever before and actually come out of it looking pretty good.
2: Why do you think this is more than just a fleeting moment and that this behavioural shift that you've described will will last?
0: I think there's a couple of reasons why it will have a permanent effect. One is because there's a new demographic that's really gone online and in the West that seems to be more older users who've perhaps been a bit resistant to adopting some technologies, so the silver digital user in their 60s who's been opening digital payment accounts, for example. In some emerging markets, Latin America in particular, which have been laggards, it also seems to have drawn in a new demographic of users who've not really shopped a lot online. The other reason is just the huge scarring that's taken place in the traditional Retail industry, where an enormous number of retailers have already or will go bust, and that includes some very famous companies like Jade Crew in America, for example. I mean, one of the most interesting questions about this, I think, is whether the the balance of power in uh, e commerce and other digital industries changes as a result. The most powerful company, I think, many people think, is Amazon. And Thompson, you've been spending. A couple of months looking at amazon and have a cover story this week for the economist on it tell us a bit about where you think it stands
2: well clearly the the digital surge that you've described plays to all of amazon's strengths and that's of course why its stock has shot up an astonishing 56 percent since mid-march in the event though amazon actually has really struggled to cope with the boom in online demand it's been described like a kind of run on the bank for the company delivery speeds tumbled people couldn't get what they wanted and that created an opportunity for other companies so amazon's market share actually tumbled from 42 percent pre-pandemic down to 34 percent its profits took a, a real hit from just having to cope with covid the good news for the company i guess has been much more on the cloud computing operation amazon web services aws it really hasn't missed a beat during these past weeks and don't forget, the unit contributes over half of Amazon's operating profits. Um In the most recent quarter, that figure was an astonishing 77%. So it's absolutely crucial for the company as a whole. And AWS has really been just reliably powering those services that we've been relying on so much um, recently to, to stop going crazy. So Zoom, Netflix, Disney Plus, Fortnite. And I interviewed Andy Jassy, AWS's boss, and he talked about you know, just astonishing surging behavior they're seeing. But the most important thing for AWS is that they haven't had the kind of issues with capacity Mr. Jassy jubilantly told me that some of its competitors have had. And the pandemic overall for AWS, it's pushing companies to the cloud at a much faster rate. So overall, the pandemic has highlighted Amazon's strengths. It's also shown that it's not as invincible as a lot of people and rivals think it is. You can compete with it. And it's also underlined the fact that the two halves of the company are quite distinct.
0: The thing that strikes me is the aura around Amazon, you know, investors and competitors have learned over the course of 25 years now never to to bet against Amazon. And even so, I think it's easy to see now that there are several areas where it's really got some quite big problems and One, I think, is the kind of social contract it's operating in. Now, there are claims that it's a monopoly, but the crisis has also, I think, brought to the fore some of the working conditions and its fulfillment centers where people pack all the boxes. And I think it's shown in a way how important Amazon is as an employer and the kind of obligations that it probably has as a result. Another area I think is interesting is as it's piled on more and more investments into more and more areas, it's become quite financially bloated. Its sort of physical asset base is now almost as big as that of Walmart. So it's no longer a kind of digital only firm. And the last thing I think, which in a way is the most interesting, is just this sense of renewed competition that you can see in the e-commerce industry. So it's interesting, even at this moment of kind of triumph in a way for Amazon, you can also begin to see some quite big structural challenges that the company and Jeff Bezos in particular have to face.
2: I want to unpick this idea of a fraying social contract that you mentioned, Patrick. A growing chorus of politicians and antitrust experts accuse Amazon of abusing its market power. On June 14th, a lawyer for Amazon said that Jeff Bezos would testify to America's Congress. A few days earlier, it was reported that the EU was preparing to bring formal antitrust charges against Amazon. And when our sister podcast, The Economist Asks, interviewed the EU's competition commissioner, Margarita Vestaya, back in April, she suggested the commission may not stop there.
0: For me, to develop e-commerce is also about enlarging who participates. Because what we see with the giants is that the antitrust work will not do the full trick. What we are considering right now is what kind of regulation is needed when you become sort of, I think back in the days, you would call it an essential uh, infrastructure, you would call it gatekeeping. But the point is that you're sort of beyond because you become so big. So
2: the sister of, of antitrust is regulation and that may indeed be needed here. As well as these challenges, Amazon is facing renewed criticism over working conditions for its warehouse staff. In May, a furore erupted after Amazon fired two tech employees who had organised a live stream for warehouse workers to explain their pandemic safety fears. Democratic senators and some shareholders have demanded more information on the dismissals. The incident prompted the resignation of Tim Bray, a respected senior vice president and engineer at Amazon Web Services and an inventor of XML and internet data description language. I spoke to him a few days ago and asked him why he felt he had to leave the company after five years in its senior management.
3: In My experience of the part of Amazon where I worked, Amazon Web Services, I had more or less nothing in, in the way of ethical compliance. I thought it was a well-managed and ethically managed organisation. And that's why I was so shocked when this pattern suddenly emerged of firing anybody who spoke up in what looked like an attempt to discourage further whistleblowers. And that was just outside the bounds of of the kind of behaviour I was willing to live with.
2: Now, Amazon has said in a statement that it supports every employee's right to criticise their employer's working conditions. But that does not come with blanket immunity against any and all internal policies. Tim, would you describe a little bit the difference between the Amazon web services culture and that of the retail e-commerce side?
3: Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. So uh, when Amazon went into work from home mode, people were instantly just with no notice at all saying, OK, we think it's safer for everybody to start working from home go home. Amazon leadership, of which, you know, I was a member, we we bent over backwards to take good care of those workers, the engineering workers who were being asked to work from home, making sure, you know, their, their family situation and their domestic situation and their home infrastructure situation, you know, screens, chairs, internet connections, were good enough. And it's interesting to me that the engineering staff received that level of care and attention, whereas there's all this controversy about the uh, warehouse staff and people speaking up saying they're they're, they're unhappy. And the difference is, is pretty obvious in the AWS, in the engineering side. These are people who are very high paid and who can get another job by walking across the street. And the situation in the warehouse is that the workforce has relatively very little power and Well, the effects of that are are obvious to anybody who looks.
2: On what Amazon has done, I mean, as you no doubt saw, they've spent a ton of money on safety improvements in the warehouse to deal with the pandemic. So they've made 150 process changes. And the company is noting that infection rates and quarantine rates um, in the warehouses are at kind of the surrounding community levels. So they feel they have a pretty good record on that. And in your memo, you did acknowledge that a lot is being done. How do you rate how amazon is is coping with the safety issues? I and mean, it's not as if the company has been silent on the matter or inactive.
3: I have no trouble believing that Amazon is indeed investing heavily and working very hard to you know, improve the safety and operability of the warehouses so that they can keep the company running during these times of, of COVID-19. At the same time, I also believe the expressions of concern and fear that I hear from the warehouse workers. I, I think both of these things can easily be true.
2: And of course, it's not the first time that Amazon has been criticised in the media for the conditions in which warehouse staff work. There's been issues around the amount of time allowed for restroom breaks, for instance, the fact that employees are very closely monitored in terms of productivity and get fired if they don't meet certain targets. You recommended, in your memo increasing collective strength, which presumably means some sort of unionisation. Do you think that the Amazon financial model, do you think it works if you had, for instance, unionisation in the warehouses?
3: Well, first of all, let me say that I don't think Amazon is the problem. I think Amazon is a symptom of the problem. And the problem is the power imbalance between the, the very large corporations and their workforces. At the end of the day, who could be against what Amazon is offering? You know, wide selection, decent prices, and fast delivery. All those are great things, but there is a cost. The people who are bearing the cost are the people who are, relatively speaking, without power. In Europe, there is a much stronger infrastructure of labor laws and regulatory systems that prevent some of the badness of that experience. It might have the effect that you lose a little bit of convenience and gain a little bit of price. But I think on balance, that's something as a society we would probably be willing to pay. You can't really get too mad at Amazon for playing within the rules to do things as cheaply as possible. And if we don't like what's going on, what we need to do is change the rules through the application of old-fashioned, boring politics
2: as i'm sure you know there's quite a lot of debate in the investor community and I, and i believe even inside amazon about whether aws is reaching the point where it's disadvantaged by being kind of in the same group as operations that are continually sort of going onto other industries turf i wonder if you might have any thoughts on whether aws might have a better future outside Amazon, whether you think that's quite a topic of conversation?
3: I absolutely think that yes, it would be beneficial to AWS and to the economy as a whole, and probably to Amazon shareholders, uh, if AWS were to be spun out. If you look at the functions that are provided to the world by the big five, which to say, you know, Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft, the notion that all of these functions are provided by only five companies feels absurd to me. If you zero in on Amazon, you have a retail company a cloud computing company, a smart speaker company, TV company with Prime Video. If you look at the numbers, AWS produces an anomalously high proportion of all of Amazon.com's profits. Thus, the money coming out of AWS can be used to subsidize the other businesses, which are ferociously in competition and operating at very, very low margins. And I think this is exactly the kind of problem that the people who wrote the anti-monopoly laws in the last century were concerned about. And I kind of think that if you went in there and took a carefully anonymized survey of all the AWS employees saying, well, would you rather be spun out as a standalone company? The result wouldn't be close. And I even think that if you took Andy Jassy and hit him in a room and gave him a truth serum and promised not to tell the answer, I really wonder what he'd say.
2: Well, what he often says is he doesn't want to have to deal with all the financial analysts, but I think that's just a clever way of getting rid of the question. That's really interesting. Thank you so much, Tim, for appearing on the show.
3: Delighted to be here. Bye-bye.
0: So, Tamsin, one of the big cries you hear all the time is break up big tech companies. Amazon in particular seems to attract a lot of attention. You've been talking to Andy Jassy, the CEO of AWS. What's their sense and what's your sense of how realistic and how beneficial it might be to split off AWS from Amazon.
2: Well, it's quite ironic, isn't it? You know, you have this immense pressure from antitrust types and politicians, but actually, perhaps what people aren't so aware of is that there's actually a kind of internal commercial rationale for separating Amazon into AWS and then the retail section. And I believe that that is entirely likely to happen indeed um, and I think investors have been expecting this to happen even for the past year or so and they certainly think it could happen within the next five years or so. The investing world was stunned in 2015 because everyone thought AWS was quite low margin but then it released its numbers, the numbers were incredible and so AWS sort of took over as the sort of the funder of Amazon. The fascinating thing is that right now a massive contradiction has emerged between AWS and the sort of Jeff Bezos driven expansion of the rest of the business, Jeff Bezos is often trying to disrupt the industry of a company that AWS wants to sell to. So those companies, they're not going to send money AWS's way and investors are super worried about it. um, And a lot of them therefore believe that there's a really strong logic to spin off AWS. And the effect of that would be pretty dramatic. Amazon would have to become less expansionary. It might become more focused. Investors would likely prefer that. But on the other hand, it would doubtless crimp the e-commerce operation in some important areas, notably with overseas expansion. Amazon is, is really largely an American business and it's incredibly expensive to go and build the kind of infrastructure that helps to conquer markets like India or China or markets in Latin America. Coming up, we'll take a closer look at what's holding back Amazon's efforts in emerging markets. And we'll hear from Amazon's leading competitor on home turf, Shopify.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
2: Amazon has a long record of successfully spotting the next opportunity and grabbing it. But when it comes to future growth in e-commerce, the outlook is complicated. Most American households that can afford the prime membership fee are already members. Amazon has been doing well in Europe, but an ageing, sluggish continent is not exactly a motor for long-term profits. Elsewhere, not everything is going to plan. A year ago, after 15 years of trying... Amazon pulled out of the purely domestic Chinese market, squeezed out by local giants Alibaba, JD.com and Pinduoduo. And in other big emerging markets, Amazon is still burning billions with little to show for it.
4: More than 600 million people are supposedly involved in the digital ecosystem of India.
2: Tom Easton is our Mumbai bureau chief.
4: But in reality, it's not as vast as you think because of how difficult the conditions are. There are two significant companies. There's Amazon and there's Flipkart, which was purchased by Walmart. But the marketplace is expected to change radically in the months ahead.
2: What impact has the pandemic had on the, on the uptake of e-commerce?
4: Well, mixed. On one level, it's been terrific. People have tried to buy many, many things online. But the Indian government has intervened heavily on what and what can't be purchased online around the category of essential. So Amazon has been in the process of selling many products only to find out at a certain point that they're not allowed to sell those products. They've somehow had to retrieve those products. Many of the successful things that have happened in India have happened more informally. So that has worked through WhatsApp groups, sending out collective messages to food and fruit vendors who have created impromptu markets, which has been an e-commerce of a sort, though not of the sort that may happen in many other countries around the world.
2: And doesn't Amazon face a bit of a political challenge in India um, because Prime Minister Modi's BJP, doesn't it draw quite a lot of support from small retailers?
4: They face a huge challenge because of that. Basically, to live in India, you'll have a store on the corner and it will have a very small smattering of products. It's called a Karana store, but they actually do more than that because you can literally call them for something as small as a candy bar. And if they don't have it, they'll find it for you. The small Corona stores are heavily organized, and they manage to put up all sorts of rules that affect Amazon. It can have warehouses, but it can't have inventory. There was a new tax of one to 2% put on foreign e-commerce sellers. You know, there's just impediment after impediment after impediment that is thrown in the way of the foreign e-commerce sellers.
2: And Jeff Bezos' Washington Post is is a complexifier, even in India, isn't it? Because of the, the Post's critical coverage of um, Modi's Hindu nationalism that cropped up during Jeff Bezos's visit to India early this year.
4: When Jeff Bezos visited a couple of years ago, I believe he was given an audience with Modi directly. And this time, an announcement to invest more money was treated with almost contempt. You know, there was no audience with Modi. I'm sure, you know, this is an administration that is incredibly sensitive about their press coverage, but it, it blends with the broader challenge that they have of the small stores and one other factor, which is that there's a local competitor that has created an incredible structure to compete with Amazon, namely Reliance Corp and its huge cell operating subsidiary, GEO.
2: How much more of a challenge does Reliance GEO become because of Facebook's massive 5.7 billion recent investment?
4: So we are at launch point for the GEO marketplace GEO has accumulated many, many physical brands. It's not limited by any of the foreign rules. They now own the largest telecommunication system in the country. I mean, if you have a phone in India, you're most likely to have a GEO phone. There's all sorts of possibility for proprietary distribution. And they have kind of a marketplace in food. And they have kind of a marketplace in fashion. But none of the different components have been put together. Now, as I mentioned, one group that has just been fantastic in being a vehicle for sales in India has been WhatsApp. And now there's a relationship with Reliance through that ownership stake through Facebook, Geo through WhatsApp promises to develop a very strong relationship with all those small Karana stores. So when you say all the pieces are there, but Reliance Geo hasn't launched, people still take it incredibly seriously.
2: People I've spoken to close to the company, you know, they do wonder how long will Amazon kind of keep throwing money at the country. You know, how much patience will they have? What are Amazon's main advantages? What are the the key weapons they're bringing to this new war?
4: You know, Amazon has been in India for quite a long time. I think its first efforts were in 2005. It has a large number of extremely smart local employees who know the marketplace. I don't know if they were quite as adept at understanding all the dynamics of China. They also have kind of an interesting case to make in India. For instance, they now say there are 60,000 sellers in India that sell across Amazon's various marketplaces overseas, and these account for over a billion dollars of exports at a time when India desperately wants to increase its exports. India has a lot of conflicting problems. I mean, for instance, even in a declining economy, it faces inflation. The reason for inflation is that everything is so expensive and inefficient to do. And I think if you ask what is the most inefficient thing, many people would say logistics. And Amazon is really good at that. So it's not impossible to think that it doesn't have a potential place in the ecosystem if the administration would let it.
2: Tom, if you had to put money on it, to whom would you say the future of e-commerce in India belongs?
4: I think everybody in India believes that Reliance and GEO have all the cards. On the other hand, I think that e-commerce is far more difficult than people outside might assume. Merely having loads of assets does not necessarily make you a winner in that very, very difficult space. Amazon faces tremendous difficulties in this environment. But I think a company that was less patient or less resolute, and frankly, that had less financial resources, would have already left.
2: That's fascinating. We'll follow this new battle of titans with interest. Thank you so much, Tom.
4: Thank you very much, Tamsin.
2: As well as having to learn the rules that govern the e-commerce game abroad, Amazon is facing serious competition in markets it had grown used to dominating comfortably. Its most prominent challenger, Shopify, a Canadian company, has gone from nowhere a few years back to nearly 6% of America's online retail market today. A million businesses use its services. It will power the back end of Facebook's new e-commerce venture, Facebook Shops. And in June, Walmart said it will open its online marketplace with 120 million visitors a month to Shopify's business clients. The pandemic has given them a huge boost.
1: In that original period between March 13th and April 24th of this year, compared to the six weeks prior, 62% growth happened in new businesses coming to Shopify. And that was really from more traditional verticals, even those like restaurants and grocers starting to come online in new ways.
2: Satish Kanwar is General Manager and Vice President of Product at Shopify.
1: It's always the small, local and independent businesses that can be hit the hardest in, in times of crisis. And so our goal really became that because Shopify exists, more small businesses should survive this pandemic. What we've seen is the traditional retailers on Shopify, they were able in that period to replace 94% of those in person transactions that they lost through selling online. We also committed an additional $200 million to our Shopify capital program and expanded that across Canada, the US, and UK to give that access to cash flow to businesses that others may not serve. And of course, we made more of our offerings available at no cost for a longer period.
2: And of course, you're compared to your Ebays and Amazons and and these kind of giants, but customers, you know, actual consumers have little idea that Shopify is there powering everything. Can you just explain the difference between that element of, you know, it sort of sits behind transactions versus the other e-commerce giants?
1: Yes, it's very important to note that Shopify isn't a marketplace. Shopify's worldview is that direct-to-consumer commerce is the most powerful and valuable thing for businesses and consumers alike. We think businesses, need to be able to connect directly with their customers and customers benefit from more value, better offerings, and a stronger experience by purchasing and communicating directly with those businesses. Because you can use Shopify to set up your own online storefront. You can use it to power a physical retail location, but you can also use it to connect into marketplaces, whether they are Amazon and eBay or more discovery tools like Facebook and Google.
2: Right, so if if Shopify grows incredibly rapidly does that come at the expense of Amazon or not? It's not obvious to me that it is at the expense of Amazon.
1: No, this is, is not a zero sum game. I mean, we're certainly seeing e-commerce share grow dramatically, uh, especially in, in the United States and in other areas where it's, it's typically lagged. But the overall opportunity for digitization of traditional retail and traditional businesses is, is massive. And it's not about uh, one or the other. It's really about encouraging flexibility and choice and we think marketplaces like Amazon play a role in the ecosystem and in the experience, but they're not what's going to be essential to the success of independent retailers over the long term.
2: Now, your CEO, Tobias Lutke, has has said that he wants to arm the rebels to compete against Amazon. What does that mean in this context?
1: Well, on the whole, we're trying to democratize technology that's typically only reserved for very large enterprises or retailers. And we want to make that available to everyone. So it's, it's really about empowerment through technology and making it available at a very low barrier to entry.
2: You say you're not a marketplace but earlier this year you relaunched the Shopify app which does act as almost a central marketplace of your own. How else is Shopify expanding into other services and areas?
1: There are three important new services from Shopify that are, I think, are important for the ecosystem and industry at large to understand. Shopify's fulfillment network is our initiative and in, in major long-term investment at enabling the fulfillment of goods from our merchants to their consumers everywhere. The second initiative I would highlight is Shopify's Shop App and Shop Pay really increasing the local discovery and direct connection between businesses and consumers through a single app that millions of users already have installed on their phones. And the third and final one I would highlight is Shopify Balance, which is a future initiative for bringing a new business banking account and card built into the Shopify platform.
2: And as you think about the future, the share price has obviously had an incredible run. The stock has nearly doubled since the start of March. When you get a narrative this exciting, sometimes the market gets a bit ahead of itself and the risk perhaps is that people then start to focus on profitability. Do you have a path to consistent profitability or is the focus really still on growth for the foreseeable future?
1: We've always been very clear that we have a large and long-term mission. So really our focus is being able to grow with our merchant community and invest in these important services and solutions that make them more competitive and make them more successful.
2: Satish, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: It seems to me that the balance of power in e-commerce is shifting. Patrick Fowles, who are the main beneficiaries of more commerce going online?
0: Well, if you look at the social impact of all of this, I think it's fair to say it does involve a huge amount of disruption. So, for jobs, it probably means a lot of churn. But in the end, most studies so far at least show that e commerce has not really had a big impact on the net number of jobs or even really on wages. The flip side is for consumers, where it's hard to argue it's not a big leap forward, e commerce seems to produce lower prices. It's easier to compare prices. And if you think, that it's going to be competitive with multiple companies taking each other on and innovating, it's likely to deliver very good results for consumers. Perhaps the most interesting question is what that means for investors. Many people who love Amazon as, as an investment do so because they think it will be very dominant and able to eventually crank out huge profits. And yet, if the market's becoming more competitive, it's likely that margins do get pressed down. So my bet would be, Okay for jobs, but a lot of disruption. Great for consumers. And the big question mark is just how well investors ultimately end up doing.
2: It is important to remember that Amazon does still hold a huge number of cards amid all of this. I mean, there is a reason why its share price has gone up by over 50%. Over the years, it did not hand profits back to investors. It resolutely carried on building expensive physical and digital infrastructure. And it all functions incredibly well. And on the retail side, yes, you know, there are a good few weeks where we had a a bit of a subprime situation, but the company's recovering now and it's well positioned to take advantage. A second strength is just that well-known scale and ultra competence. You'll see third party sellers on Amazon Marketplace, you know, they'll moan about Amazon's terms or how they get treated, but they basically can't afford to leave. You know, you have to be on Amazon because of that scale and on the competence side, people really trust it. It's currently the number one in the US customer satisfaction index for internet retail. It's been in the top 10 for the past 11 years. And the third strength I would say is, is the culture, just the way the company's always pushing into new business models and experimenting with new technology. There's no real obvious sign of that sort of restlessness in its culture slowing down or going away.
0: So where would you say... All of this leaves Amazon as as it faces day two.
2: I think Amazon has moved beyond day one. The company is huge. Its growth is slowing a bit. It's got a massive degree of power, which has also generated plenty of enemies. The succession question around Jeff Bezos. So it's in a new phase. And I think it's got some hard decisions to make. For instance, does it raise wages to placate its critics on the labour front? But that would take away some of its low-cost edge over newly resurgent competition. Then there is the possibility of an AWS spin-off. If that happens, it would deprive the group of a lot of cash. The company is 26 years old. It's hugely successful, probably beyond even the young Jeff Bezos' wildest dreams. But as the evolution of the e-commerce world only accelerates, the goliath of the industry is not getting any easier to run. That's all for this edition of Money Talks. My thanks to Patrick Fowles, Tim Bray, Tom Easton, Satish Kanwar, Anne Cantrell and Jess Risa. To read more about the future of e-commerce and Amazon's place in it, take a look at this week's issue of The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer wherever you are in the world. That's economist.com slash podcast offer and the link is in the show notes. And do give our podcast a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Tamsin Booth, and in London, this is The Economist.
3: Small
4: details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.